is Meatless, a podcast about eating from how we get to next. I'm Alicia Kennedy, a food and drink writer. I'll be having conversations with chefs, writers, and more about how their personal and political beliefs determine whether or not they eat meat. The show asks the question, how do identity, culture, economics, and history affect a diet? In this episode, I talk to Olivia Hu, co-owner of Old Timers Bar in Bushwick, Brooklyn. We discuss her route to cocktail making, how being pescatarian fits into the Chinese cuisine she grew up with, and her goal of creating a bar that is a safe space for all. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you, Alicia. Can you tell me about where you grew up and what you ate? Yeah, definitely. Um, I grew up in Reno, Nevada. My parents are immigrants from China. My sister and I are first generation. Um, My mom used to make home-cooked meals for us, and it was the type of Chinese food that I never had seen in any restaurant in America. And I think until I was around in college, I always kind of wondered why her home cooking was so obscure. And then the first time I felt this like connection to like the outside world and that cooking was when I saw on NPR there was a cookbook that was published that was specifically recipes from the era of Chairman Mao and the Cultural Revolution. And I'm flipping through the recipes for these dishes that my mom had made for me almost to a T, all the same ingredients. And it was the first time that I my eyes were open to like why my mom cooked that way because the cultural revolution was really really difficult and my parents were teenagers and very young children during that time and there's this one dish where it's like scrambled eggs with water and chopped up shrimp and sesame oil and salt and scallions on the top and it's in prepared in a big bowl and you steam it and it's like this custard and it's so easy to make I actually just made it the other day but it's made to spread out very few egg rations. I just thought that was so fascinating. Like all of these recipes, you just can't really find them in restaurants that that easily. And it was all because of this like political, socioeconomic like landscape that my parents were like children in. I thought that was so cool. Was there any other dishes that you remember from that time? Um I've actually been seeing some dishes pop up more in kind of trendier Chinese restaurants that are popping up. Uh, one place that I recently discovered was is Way Williamsburg. It's on Union, I believe. I might be wrong about that, but Way is open till 4 a.m., which as someone who works in nightlife is like really convenient. I was kind of just scrolling through their Yelp and I was like amazed by these photos of these uh, dishes that my mom used to make like one of my favorites actually um, I don't think it even specifies on the way Williamsburg menu which I think is super funny because that's like so Chinese but it's usually uh, sole or I would say tilapia or like there's a fish that starts with B like ba uh, I have to revisit that um, but it's white fish fillets basically with large chopped scallions and uh, slices of ginger and this really specific Chinese cooking wine. Um, 
I have like a photo of the label that I made my mom send me from her cabinet. And when I go shopping in Flushing, I like look around for the exact like cooking wine. But you basically have the fish on a plate. All it is is the cooking wine and the ginger and the scallions. And then you steam that. And they serve it at way, which I was like shocked because I that's not something that I typically see in Chinese restaurants. Maybe that has something to do with kind of like people, Americans are kind of now coming around to like real Chinese cuisine, not just like Chinese American fast food that you get like a pint for of Western broccoli for $5. Side note, anytime you see a restaurant, a Chinese restaurant that's serving uh, Western broccoli, you know that it's not legit. I'm just going <laughs> to... Just gonna give you the secret there, <laughs> um, but that dish I made for myself, and it's so easy, it's so healthy, it's not fried. There's literally no oil and there's no grease, and it's like one of my favorite things to eat, basically. So what what brought you from Reno, Nevada, to working in New York nightlife? Oh, I've lived <laughs> in New York for nine years, almost a decade now. Um, I, when I was a kid in Reno, I think I always wanted to live in a big city. My parents are from Shanghai. They were both born there and they grew up in this metropolitan. They grew up, my mom grew up in this village that is, inside the village, there's a dumpling house that has like the most famous Shanghai soup dumplings in the city. So since soup soup dumplings are from Shanghai, I could probably easily say that those are the best soup dumplings in the world, I I guess, if they're the best in Shanghai. And like Bill Clinton went there during his presidency to experience those soup dumplings and like that and my parents got married in that village too. Um when I was a kid, my dad always told me like we live in Reno right now. It's like very comfortable and natural and lovely. We're really close to the Truckee River and Lake Tahoe, but like He used to tell me this while we were driving around town. He'd be like, you know, we're actually big city people. That's who we truly are. We are from Shanghai. And he was like, you should spend some time in a big city and maybe go try to live in Shanghai's sister city, which is New York. And as a kid, I was like, okay, sounds good. (laughs) The rest is history, I suppose. Did you come here for school originally? Yeah. I came here for school to study environmentalism. English writing and uh, fine arts with a focus on painting and then became a bartender. I don't know. <laughs> Life is very discursive, I suppose. <laughs> how, how, when, when, what was your first bartending job? I was a server for a while. Um, wait staff is really difficult. Uh, table service is just really hard. I mean, you just have to take nothing personally and let like horrible treatment roll off your back I guess with bartending I kind of witnessed that you have a little bit more authority where you can kind of put people in line if they're misbehaving like hey you need to really really calm down you're being ridiculous right now and um but I was also extremely interested in that world because I I like used to uh, do table service at distilled in Tribeca and that's where I met Benjamin Wood he has like received James Beard uh, accolades and for his cocktail program. And I think I saw him and how friendly and actually truly how much he truly cared about the staff, whether you're the dishwasher or whoever you were like being someone who works in restaurants for years and years, you learn that like the porter and the dishwasher are like the most important part of the restaurant and you treat them with respect. And 
after when I left Distilled to start barbacking, I spent 10 months barbacking. And as a female barback, nobody treated me like, oh, well, you're on the schedule. You're doing the same things that the male barbacks will do. And that treatment really like solidified my you know, my work ethic where it's like, I will clean the garbage cans. I will lift the kegs. I will deadlift the kegs all by myself. <laughs> and after barbacking, I just did some kind of like event bartending. Like I bartended at McCarran Park Summer Screen, which was super easy and super fun. And like I used to bartend at Silent Barn, which is a was a DIY venue that closed down recently. And then that's when I was hired at Sunrise Sunset four and a half years ago. And I quickly, just circumstantially, and just for the fact that I was like a really hard worker and available, um, I quickly became the bar manager there, and I'm the front of house manager now. I designed the cocktail menu, and I did that for four and a half years. But now you have opened Old Timers in Bushwick. Uh, how has that experience been? It's been incredible. I feel... Since I signed on to the project in June, I've learned so much. I just can't even believe the process that I just went through. I did it with the guidance of my partner, Skylar, who's opened Alaska and Alphaville and Bushwick. And without his focus and his guidance, we couldn't have pushed through so quickly. Uh, with the location and uh, just certain like bureaucratic issues with the community, I think we were extremely lucky because every step of the process like happened immediately. There were certain uh, elements of opening a bar that bar owners anticipate taking possibly several weeks or several months in the bureaucratic process. But uh, it seemed like the city really wanted us to be there. They were, every time we went to a meeting, they were so supportive of us. They loved our concept. They loved what we were presenting. And we pushed through every application almost like instantly. It was incredible. Almost like as lucky as you could be in that process. Do you think you face any specific challenges as a bar owner and as a bartender uh, being a woman of color? Oh, well, just in a day-to-day, -day, you have to deal with people in this really unique combo of treatment that can be both racist and sexist at the same <laughs> yeah. time. And that's really special. I've just like had so much experience dealing with that type of treatment that I feel now that I just like respond to them in ways that make them either extremely embarrassed or if it seems like a situation where my safety is compromised, then just exiting as quickly as possible, just getting out of there safe. Um, there are a lot of elements to being in a unique position that I'm in where I was born not white and not male, but actually the community that we've created has been really, I'm actually amazed by it because almost all of my bartenders are not heterosexual, not white, or not male. At least one of those, if not like a several combos. We do have one bartender, Ryan Gable. Uh, he has a girlfriend and he's white, but, <laughs> but he's extremely special. He's a very talented bartender. And he is an elf from Middle Earth, Earth, we've decided. Okay. So he's not really human. He's kind of like <laughs> an alien or like an, an, he's like from a different fantasy. Basically. Right, right, right. And he's just like, he bartended our friends and family, which was a ridiculous party. And 
he was closing a lot of our really uh, vital shifts so far, like New Year's Eve night and like the first night that we we're officially open to the public. But my entire staff, I just like really think about like what we've created and our certain set of values. You know, the concept of old timers means a lot to me and I try not to over explain because I've heard like anytime you create anything, you don't want to uh, insult the the uh, intelligence of your audience. So right. I'm not trying to like over explain the concept, but for one matter, I've worked in the service industry for a really long time and everyone that I've hired has been in it for a really long time. I've heard some really disturbing stories like my boss was a pervert, but otherwise he was really great. Or like one of my bartenders told me, Chrissy, uh, Chrissy told me that she had a boss that like really, really tried to sleep with her. And if he, if she wasn't reciprocating or texting him back late at night, then he would like take shifts away. It was just like a horrific nightmare situation to be in. And yet we all find ourselves in that position where we just stick to that job because the money is fine and we're really desperate and we're making excuses and making compromises. Um, so all of my bartenders are old timers in that way. They've been through it all. And part of it is that like for everything that I've been through and my intellectual values, I'm in a way saving them from that culture. And even like Anthony Bourdain said, you know, before he passed away that he has regrets with this macho masculine restaurant culture that exists now, especially in New York city and how he regretted kind of putting on uh, that whole show right. for everyone to see. Because sometimes we think if we really think about culture, if we really think about operations, we can realize that it doesn't have to be that way. This like really abusive, you know, militaristic kind of like throwing pans across the kitchen and screaming type of culture. Although things can be hard sometimes, too, because ultimately I'm the authority and it all comes down to me doing my job right. and them doing their job. But they'll never see me throwing objects or like hurling insults or using sex as leverage for shifts. <laughs> I mean, that's just like a nightmare. Yeah, 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 yeah. So you you create a lot of cocktails uh, at, at, with both your work at Sunrise Sunset and now your work at Old Timers and also you've written recipes and I actually edited you at Edible Brooklyn. But what are how do you kind of approach when you like have an idea for a cocktail? Like what's what's the what are those steps? I have a few different approaches because the end result is always what delivers. A lot of times you can think in concept that a cocktail will be really delicious, but then you try it and you're like, oh, I mean, I've been through many of those. I'm like, this doesn't even taste good. Like, yeah, yeah, I yeah. really wanted it to, but it doesn't. And as a side note, Alicia, you're a brilliant editor. Oh, you thanks. made me sound so smart. <laughs> and it was wonderful. Um, yeah, and I, I was loving doing those freelance assignments, too, because it was just a way to get those creative juices going once in a while. Um, I was featured on Supercall, which is a, like a cocktail media company. That was super fun. Um, oh, I attended Gary Regan's Cocktails in the Country, uh, seminar, and I like received a scholarship to go there for free randomly. It was like so serendipitous and I was just working really, really hard and to have two days where we're just behind this kind of like staged bar. Uh, like making a, we would like draw a spirit from a hat and then just based on what was in the back bar, we would create, 
unique cocktails and then we would take photos and send them to the liquor companies, which is great for them. And um, normally I just, I choose the base spirit first. Do I want it to be gin, vodka, whiskey? Or then I think like, what style do I want it? Do I want it like spirit on spirit stir drink? Do I want it with fresh components like shaken really hard? <laughs> and then I start with uh, the proportions that make sense to me just from my experience. Like usually with a 40 proof liquor, you'll start at like maybe an ounce and a half and either adjust to two ounces or maybe one instead. And then with like liqueurs and lower ABV uh, liqueurs, you'll start maybe a half ounce. Same with juices, like if you want like peach juice or uh, lime juice, et cetera, cranberry. And then after you kind of get the uh, the base down, and I will say that some cocktail, uh, some like vodkas have different tasting notes like it'll be like this is citrusy this is piney you kind of taste some mineral or maybe some orange peel you would decide which of those components you want to really really highlight and bring out because if some if a gin tastes orangey then why not add some triple sec just make it go all the way maybe add some orange bitters or if there's one component of it that's like really subtle like cardamom it's like cardamom is just kind of on the back of the palate add some cardamom bitters at the very end. And um, then you think about the aesthetics. Do you want to serve, what kind of glassware do you want to serve in? And there's certain movements in the cocktail world that I'm really getting behind. Like I know the Dead Rabbit is all about this, but they aren't doing garnishes unless they contribute something to it uh, culinarily or through some kind of sense, like aroma, which I think is great because for business owners, they spend a lot of money on these really festive decorative garnishes, and I think that's great. But it all gets tossed in the end. It kind of gets, this is like my neuroses bartender, it gets stuck in like the mesh of the sink strainer, and um, it costs money and it just looks pretty, which is fine and great, but can we accomplish that with something that contributes to the smell or the uh, the taste? And at Old Timers, I have a cocktail where the garnish is just a few drops of rosemary-infused olive oil. Super easy to prep. Just throw a bunch of uh, rosemary and some olive oil. And I actually dump a ton of salt in there, too, which is, like, one of my favorite little moves. Uh, <laughs> salt is just, like, incredible. I think that I, I get behind uh, the idea of having a vial of saline and just, like, squirting a little bit of saline into the shaker. I think it really, like, brings out all of the flavors of every element of it. Uh, we aren't doing that at old timers, but maybe someday down the road, I'd like to have a program that does that type of thing. But um, I just really like the idea of just kind of like less waste right. cocktails. Yeah, that's become a big kind of a movement now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I saw the Bombay Sapphire, which is a huge company, but they they're someone won their cocktail contest with just doing no waste cocktails. I love it. Yeah, yeah. So you actually are pretty sustainably minded and now are pescatarian. How, yes. what inspired that move for you? I think that our diet choices do influence like the, our culture in a lot of ways. And I think I just had a moment maybe like about a year ago where I realized I didn't really feel like eating cow. I didn't feel like eating bird. And there was a certain point where 
in my life where I thought I would never quit bird, especially when I'm in China. It, duck is a huge thing in China, and I I didn't think I would ever give it up. But I mostly just eat plants, and I'll eat fish. But generally, I would like to have it if it's sustainably sourced, or if like the uh, restaurant menu says it has all of the certifications. Uh, sometimes I do cheat a little bit and I'm like, this is probably not good fish, but I'm just <laughs> going to eat it anyway. But it is important to think about your food choices because these animals, they're brought into this world to live a horrific existence just to be slaughtered in an unsanitary way. I mean, I was just thinking about that myself for myself in a way as well where these factories are disgusting. There's like feces and feathers and limbs on the ground and the the beaks of the chickens are chopped off because in close quarters they're attacking each other and they wouldn't even attack each other if they weren't all shoved into this dark warehouse. And if you were to really look into the production of it, which of course it's all by design that it's not common knowledge that it's produced this way, it's wrapped up so neatly in the grocery store with a little picture of a farm on it as if that's where it came from. And I personally don't really want to eat bird where they are, uh, their breasts are enlarged and their legs break because their breasts are so heavy and can't support their, their bodies. That's not really something I want to consume myself. Uh, aside from the environmental and ethical right. impact of, of production in that way. I actually am not against small farms producing meat. If I lived closer to like Union Square Farmer's Market, for example, I would absolutely get bird and cow from the farmer's market because I think they need support too. Otherwise, they're going to be crushed by the big industry companies. And, you know, the independent farm system is already failing because of that industry. And I would actually love to support them or even just get like a package of eggs because I'm not vegan. I, right. I eat eggs almost every day. And any way that I can support them, I would be supportive of that. But it's not the most convenient thing. Right. When I lived on campus at Pace, it was only a four express train away from the Union Square Farmers Market and I would go all the time. But living in Bushwick now, not so much. Have, are there, is there a farmers market in Bushwick? There is one at Maria Hernandez, but I don't think they do much animal product. Right, right, right. Maybe some eggs, which I'll get behind that. <laughs> how how <laughs> has uh, making this new dietary choice uh, changed how you relate to maybe the food you grew up eating or, or how you eat nostalgically now? Like, what have there been changes in that way? Absolutely. And I think about this all the time because especially opening old timers, I, there were some days during construction where I would be so like spread thin and I just needed something to feel good and to comfort myself. Um, and so I would make trips to Flushing or birds of a feather in Williamsburg, which birds of a feather I found after visiting for the first time is a sister restaurant to cafe China the only Chinese restaurant in New York that has a Michelin star, which is huge, and I think is reflective of how the culture sees Chinese food in general. But I used to crave soup dumplings, which is just like 
pork bone broth frozen into a gelatin cut into cubes and wrapped up with pork and ginger and scallions and seasoning and Chinese cuisine is very heavily pork influenced I was looking through this 800 page uh, Chinese food recipe book I have where there's this extremely iconic Shanghai dish that's uh, eel with noodles and I am looking at it, I'm like, I can make this. I, I, I'll eat eel. And um, the recipe said one scoop of pork back fat, mm. which I'm like, I don't really know where I would acquire this. <laughs> and I would probably make a version of the recipe where it's just like canola oil instead of pork fat. And that's just like how deep pork is in, in Chinese cuisine. For example, if I just wanted some long beans, that's like a Sichuan style long bean dish, I there might be pork in it and I would have to ask them not to make pork. Or for example, like mapo tofu, which is a dish that I feel is becoming very popular now in America. Mapo tofu is typically cooked with ground pork. And if you wanted it vegan, you would have to specifically ask for no pork. But there are certain dishes that I always go back to as a vegetarian. Um, uh, water spinach with garlic chunks uh, that is like extremely nostalgic for me that was almost a staple at home something that my mom would just make almost every day and it like this restaurant isn't Chinese but I just really love it there I go there for comfort but bunker mm-hmm. the oh, new yeah, yeah. the new bunker next to elsewhere they have on their menu a side of Chinese water spinach where the portion is so large and it's eight dollars, and it makes me feel so good. And they have like a side of vegan broth for, uh, it's either three dollars or five, something really cheap, but their portions are so big. And for what I'm getting out of it personally, to have like Chinese water spinach on a pretty rough, pretty rough time, <laughs> um, just during construction, of course. But that value to me is so much more than like $8 or $10. Right, right. And the cost of food that is non-European is a big topic of conversation. And I know that you're a big fan of Crescendo Ray's The Ethnic Restaurateur. How, How have you related his work to your perception of Chinese cuisine in New York and in, and in America more broadly? I love what Christian Dure wrote about in the restaurant tour because he was talking about how the way that we view white table cloth dining or haute cuisine, as they say, basically the Michelin star uh, culture, a lot of the times is reflective of how we view the expats, not how we taste the food. Right. And Chinese immigrants are still widely viewed as poor. For what Christian Dure says, which I thought was really eye-opening in a way was that for a community that for almost 200 years in this country has taken on the bulk of the cleaning and the cooking, Chinese people have remained so silent because that's actually an effect of the diaspora. We're from so far away and we didn't come here through slavery. We came here to escape some kind of horrific regime or horrific political landscape that we have to be grateful that we are here. And a lot of us are, and I, I am, and I'm happy that my parents like escaped the life that they did. But still, that doesn't mean we have to tolerate this kind of like second-class treatment in the way that we are undervalued and seen as this kind of xenophobic. I mean, I people tell me like 
accidentally xenophobic things all the time. Like, you know, people ask me if I've like eaten dog, which people in China own dogs as pets. Also, some villages, China is such a huge country geographically, it's almost like a continent, and there's so many different cultures. It's only become centralized in the past hundred years. Uh, Chairman Mao himself could only speak his regional dialect. He never learned how to speak Mandarin or any other dialect. And he always had to have a translator around. And um, so there are some certain villages in China, certainly, that do rely on dog. But it's just like that You, we should remember that it's like this poverty, right, where it's just like they will use for any animal, they'll use every element of the animal, like the organs and the bones and the bones are made into stews that last for a week. Like that's the level of necessity that people exist in. And also I do love dogs, but like, how is that different from eating a pig? Like pigs are smarter than dogs. And so it is this like xenophobic culture around like Chinese food. Um, I, it's a subject that I think about a lot. Uh, I love Crescendo Ray's like commentary on how we're seen, we are seen as so poor and so like low class, and the comparison to like Japanese culture, which is very uh, rigid, has a fascist history, very strict and disciplinarian, and also very accepting for Westerners to visit. Um, when I was going to China as a kid, my grandparents place that they owned didn't have like indoor plumbing I had like a little ceramic pot that went under my bed and the government would send people around once a day to collect the contents of the pot like that was a job that my dad had when he was a kid he had to collect the pots from everyone's (laughs) apartments and um, that's not something that westerners are used to I mean David Sedaris got a lot of flack from the short story that he wrote about going to China where sometimes people are like oh it was satire just take a joke but David Sedaris was like I went to Japan it was so clean everyone was so nice everyone was so lovely and then I stepped off the plane in China and everyone was spitting and they served me a whole chicken and a soup with the feathers and it was disgusting and I never want to go to China again and I read that and I kind of reacting in a way that was like, wow, okay, uh, this is an influential, popular writer. And I know that actually everyone agrees with him. Right. And that is not the way that I see my parents' country at all. Yeah. And you go to Flushing often. Uh, you mentioned the wine, the cooking wine that you purchased. I know mm-hmm. that you have to go there to get by Joe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We've had a conversation about that. Um it's become like a fashionable thing to go to Flushing and eat, at least among food people. Um, how how do you perceive Flushing? Because, you know, for for non-Chinese people, it's like, oh, this is where you go to get the real Chinese food. And like, is that real? Is that the case? Flushing is the most authentic Chinatown I've ever been in America, okay. which was it actually blew me away. And I love that I can go to certain restaurants. My favorite ones, actually, they do not speak English. They have no expectation that you speak English at all. Uh, my favorite one, Dashi, it's on the second floor of New World Mall, which New World Mall is like pretty well known uh, in the Flushing scene, but I don't think many uh, Americans go upstairs to that silly shopping mall, which I love. And the to get into Dashi, it's so crowded and everyone is lined up. The wait is at least 45 minutes for dinner service. And you sit in the chairs, and 
the host kind of yells your number in Mandarin out into the abyss. And if you can't understand Mandarin, you basically can't get in. And um, that was where my dad had this Sichuan uh, kidney dish, which actually being pescatarian, my um, my philosophies on like organ meat sometimes is like, well, a lot of Americans throw this away and they think it's really gross and weird. And I'll try some organ meat because it's like waste meat in a way. Yeah, yeah. And so my dad was just blown away by this dish and he said like incredible I can't even believe how good this is because he's been living in Reno for a little bit he's had some health issues and uh, he was getting some treatment in Reno there so he hasn't been in China for about a year so it's been about a year since he's had really good Chinese food and the way that I feel about flushing and like the coverage which I've read some stuff by food writers, and I'm super supportive of everyone going out there and just uh, giving these businesses exposure. And I've spoken to a couple of people here through my like free, uh, freelance channels, but I think it's time that Chinese people deserve to take control of their own stories and their own culture because it makes me really upset sometimes when I see some non-Chinese people covering that. And the way that they cover it is this Christopher Columbus-y right oh, look at how funny it is that we're in Flushing and look at these silly DVDs, which I admit I like. I really like the DVDs too. <laughs> but the way that they present it is this kind of spectacle uh, type of thing. And yes, I get Baijiu from there. I had kind of a surreal moment uh, last year when I went to Beijing for my dad's uh, college reunion party. And my dad went to school for the highest level of the Chinese police, like basically the equivalent of the FBI. My dad didn't become an FBI agent, but all of his colleagues did. And they were all retired because in China, you're not allowed to like meet up and socialize if you're still in the FBI. <laughs> but uh, I had a super surreal moment in the most beautiful, gorgeous restaurant I've ever been in in Beijing. Um, well, in my life, but it's in Beijing. There was a straight up lake in the middle of the restaurant indoors. <laughs> and we're standing we're sitting at a circular table because that's how Chinese people truly dine. Any restaurant in America where there isn't like a group communal zone with a glass uh, lazy Susan, another red flag, not <laughs> not authentic. And um, we you drink Baicho in little personal pitchers with tiny cups because Baijiu is such a high ABV, it's higher than vodka. And the moment that I felt extremely surreal was when I was in this like lake restaurant doing shots with ex-FBI agents. <laughs> and they were talking about ghosts. It was just incredible. It was like, and the food was just absolutely insane. Like the most exquisite food I've ever had in my life. <laughs> and so for you, I mean, Obviously, you're mostly bartending, and I, but you cook for at home. But for you, like, is this work in food political to you? I think that a lot of our decisions are inherently political. And I think that as a woman of color, my existence is inherently political because for better or for worse, people are looking to you to be more righteous. It is a really interesting position to be in because... I've unfortunately been in collaborative projects like as a musician where I accidentally joined a band with an assaulter and the manipulation is so deep and the facade is so strong that even I within close quarters didn't know 
that my bandmate was hurting people and hurting women. And I've been really hard on myself for the fact that I've gotten on stage with rapists and in the proximity that I'm in, having put victims in danger because they see me and they think it must be inherently safe. I'm an outspoken feminist, you know, intersectionalism is like something I think about all the time. And so for me to be close to this person is exposing people. And I was, I did nothing wrong. I didn't hurt anyone, but still like the complicitness of the situation uh, is really important. And that's why I have to toe certain lines as a boss very carefully, because I handmade a mosaic that is in between the bathrooms of old timers that says no predators allowed. I decided in that moment, well, before I even signed on to this project, I told my partner, I was like, this person, he raved me, he can't DJ here, he can't be here. And that was a really hard discussion to have because some of these abusers are in the scene, they're in the community, and everything is so deep and the victims are so afraid and that like this information isn't free because there are consequences, there's retaliation. You know, someone could get extremely angry that you're tarnishing their reputation and taking away opportunities. They could show up at your work. They could show up at your door. Um, There are a lot of political decisions to be made, like who is not allowed on the premises? Uh, Who is can be served a drink, but they need to be watched really carefully, that type of thing. And I feel this. I feel very responsible for the safety of my clients and for my employees. I always, always, always want to do the right thing. As long as the information is ready and available, it will be difficult to know if everyone who's on premises all the time has ever hurt anyone ever. Yeah. That is dependent a little bit on the channels of communication and the access to information that I have. Because I made a promise to a community when I put up a mosaic that said no predators allowed. I spend money paying a security guard to make sure that my women bartenders are good to close late at night, 4.30 in the morning. We're open till four every single day. And there have been real moves made to with this dedication to this promise. Thank you so much, Olivia. Thank you, Alicia. I had a really good time. <laughs>